0: to the Future of Field Service podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Nicastro. Today we're going to be talking about how Panasonic has set its sights on service. I'm excited to welcome today to the podcast Carl Lowe, head of Panasonic European Service at Panasonic Heating and Cooling Solutions Europe. Carl, welcome to the Future of Field Service podcast. Thank you. Um, some of you may have, have seen, uh, we did an article with, with Panasonic on future field service, um, in, in 2020, um, and, and talked a bit about, um, the, the then new role that Carl was taking on with the company and, and some of the things that, that he had planned. Um, so today we're going to, to dig into that a little bit further and, and talk about some of the lessons learned and, um, uh evolution of, of that strategy and, and what Carl is working on. So, Carl, before we, we dig in um, to the conversation, why don't you tell our listeners um, a bit about yourself and, and your role with Panasonic?
1: Yeah. So, uh, as you said, my name is Cole Lowe. I'm the head of service for uh, European uh, Panasonic organization, um, which is known as PAPIU, uh, heating and cooling division. And uh, I joined Panasonic uh, actually a year ago uh, in two weeks from now, so nearly a year, and um, uh, but my history within service um, is, goes back around 24 years. So I've been in, in the, the HVAC organization for that time, started as an apprentice, uh, and have done various different roles as an engineer, projects manager, service sales, and so on and so forth. Um, and now I've, in the last 10 years, spent my time really developing service organizations for um, OEMs in Europe. Uh, so actually, this is the first time I've worked for a for an organization outside of Europe. Um, So it's different, Um, but fundamentally the the core elements of what I do in service are the same, no matter what the company. Mm
0: -hmm. Good. And and you were brought on to Panasonic specifically to to really um, evolve the company's uh, strategy and and mission around service. Um, So tell us a little bit about, you know, what Panasonic sees in terms of the service opportunity and and kind of, you know, evolving the organization in in its service mindset, its service offerings, et cetera.
1: Yeah, so I think Panasonic is is no different to many organizations I've worked for uh, within the HVAC industry and that they're very uh, product centric, but that is changing. Um, I think fundamentally, uh, companies are now starting to realize that uh, the product is, of course, massively important, but actually more customers are focusing on the solution and servicetization in general. Uh, and Panasonic has recognized that, hence why I've joined the company, is to help try and uh, provide, first of all, a, a better solution whole, all, um, all around to the products that we provide. Um, that may be things such as including uh, subscription-based contracts, uh, obviously looking to sort of monetize our, our service offerings as well. Uh, but also providing you know, a better um, end-to-end customer experience. Uh, what we're aiming to do within uh, service um, is to become a differentiator between our competitors and uh, what we can offer within service. And um, That may be around, as I said, subscription-based service contracts, uh, maybe trying to offer um, uh, generally better support around the products that we sell. But it's moving away from simply being a, a product solely product manufacturer to kind of a a solution driven organization
0: makes sense it makes sense um it it's it's so interesting to me um you know to to hear anyone that i interview um summarize it so simply but but knowing uh the complexity that's really underneath that that evolution right i mean you know, you you think of how in many many manufacturing organizations, service has just historically been a bolt on and an afterthought, you know, a, a cost center, and that shift to thinking about how it can be a strategic differentiator, how it can set you apart from your competition, how it can be um, a huge brand impact is is a really big change. Um, so. So when you joined the company, um, the first thing you did was, was conduct a maturity assessment to sort of get a lay of the land and, and really to understand where you needed to start from. So um, I, I, think, I think it's interesting for you to share a bit about um, you know, what you looked at and, and how you did that because that's, that's an, I, I think an important um, you know, starting point for anyone new to a company or not to really you know, begin this journey from. So tell us about how you did that.
1: Yeah, so that was quite actually an interesting um, project uh, for when I joined the business was to really understand uh, where the lay of the land was. So I think I've said to you before, Sarah, is that we tend to operate uh, as a siloed approach within Panasonic. And that's simply because what we call NSCs, national sales companies, uh, have been kind of independent sales organizations. So they've been reasonably autonomous. Um, But obviously within service, what we're trying to offer is Uh, a sort of a a little bit more of a top-down approach, adding some governance and structure to what we do, Um, because what we are aiming for is um, a consistent customer journey. So a little bit like uh, uh, going into a sort of Mercedes, BMW garage, something like that. It doesn't really matter where you enter, what country, uh, you'll probably get the similar kind of service. And and that's really what we're trying to aim for. At the moment, that's different just because every organisation that we have in Europe within Panasonic Heat and Cooling is... Uh, fundamentally a standalone organization so it was important for me to really understand the maturity of each organization so that we could uh, effectively see where our strengths and weaknesses were so we conducted a a maturity survey we asked each of the countries uh, including the country manager and the service manager and their associated teams to really ask answer these questions um, to provide an understanding where they are now uh, mm-hmm. From there, we ask them to put in a target of where they would like to be in the future. So a year from now, and then what they would need for that to happen. Um, so mm-hmm. the, the emphasis is not purely just on them, it's also on me as the service head and the organisation to perhaps provide certain uh, resources for them to mature their, mature their organisation. So we've done that now, we've conducted that survey and we've set all of the targets. Um, And the idea is that each NSC should create or should complete, sorry, about 40% of those. And if they do, we will see uh, the maturity of the business increase. Mm -hmm. But also there's a correlation between maturity and the, um, I suppose, the service sales element of the business. If we mature the business, we should see that their profit should also increase as well. Mm -hmm. We should also see things like customer satisfaction improve. Um, so there's a lot of benefits. It's not just about effectively moving and shifting to the right, because it's a number that we want to increase by. There's a correlation between that benefit in other parts of the business and mm-hmm. service in general. So. Mm-hmm.
0: so when you, when you conducted that assessment, um, what were you asking on the survey? And and by that, I, I don't mean, um, I don't mean necessarily, you know, every, every uh, individual question, but, you know, were you looking at, at, I'm curious what all categories you looked at. Like, are you looking at mindset? You're obviously looking at status, like actual numbers and, and factual data. Are you looking at mindset? Are you looking at processes? Are you looking at technologies and use? Like, what was um, the the gist of, of the, the view you were trying to, to gain by doing that, that research?
1: Yeah, so we break it down into kind of three topics. And really what we were looking for is I suppose the first part was the collaboration. Mm -hmm. Did we see strong collaboration between the traditional product sales teams and the service teams? Mm -hmm. In my experience, you don't always get that. I think sometimes the the product sales team uh, will work completely autonomous from the service team and vice versa. Uh, And I've seen the good and the bad from that as well. I've seen it when you have very high collaboration, but actually it benefits the business and the customer as well. Mm -hmm. So I was really keen to see actually how was the collaboration um, was it bad? Was it good? And actually, generally, that, that seemed to be pretty strong within Panasonic, which was good to see. Mm-hmm. But really what we were offering fundamentally um, is warranty support. So we were on the first run, really, of the, the servicetization model. It was generally mm-hmm. around full product support. There was nothing more that was fundamentally added other than that. A few countries offered service contracts, but not a great deal more. So I really wanted to see how the collaboration was. Mm -hmm. We also asked questions that were related to service sales. So did we proactively um, drive sales through spares, through upgrades, through service contracts? Um, And we also asked a little bit about sort of the operational side of the business. Did they have a CRM? Did -hmm. they track KPIs? That sort of thing. So we had a a rounded kind of uh, survey, only 18 questions, but it, it really kind of tried to target each point fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so we could then kind of understand where, where we sat. We took that data. We then were able to put that onto a, uh, I suppose, an overview, a bird's eye view where all of the countries sat within the, within the, uh, the maturity, uh, organization.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So, so you said, um, you know, the, one of the overarching goals is to create, um, more cohesiveness and, um, Improve the the customer experience. Now, you know, in a in a situation where you're, um, you know, only directly providing that service, that that is challenging enough. Um, but in a situation where you have these um, NSCs, you know, even more so, because as you said, they're they're accustomed to operating quite independently. Mm-hmm. Um, so, how are you? how are you handling that challenge? You know, how are you, you navigating the need to, um, you know, to, to take a little bit more control, provide more governance, but still you know, allow them to feel as though they, they have some autonomy?
1: Well, I think what we found from, from doing the, the, the survey was that we had 10 points between the lowest maturing organization and the highest maturing organization. Actually, in reality, that's quite a big difference. Um, That's a difference between an organization making zero service sales, and making around 3 million euro Euro service sales per year. It's a difference between a team of three and a team of, say, 16. Um, So there's a lot of complexity with the maturity, the higher you go up as well. Um, And what we found was that the best thing for us as part of our service strategy was to really focus on the operational side of the business to begin with. So that was very clear to us because we had a lot of different systems and processes simply because each organization worked independently uh, and we wanted to create that, as I said, that sort of governance structure to be able to support the NSCs with kind of best in practice. So a single CRM rather than many different versions of CRMs, um, the IFS uh, solution, which is now obviously rolled out uh, and so on and so forth, uh, adding sort of structure around uh, the P&L reporting, we had many different ways of effectively calling labor labor Uh, and that's because it was reported within our uh, ERP system with different codes so it was impossible to see how many service contracts have we sold this year because Mm -hmm. quite frankly each country just reported the coding in a different way Um, so they're the sort of things that we've tried to focus on first to really help the NSCs to first of all kind of work and report in the same way Um, It would be very easy of us to say, okay, we're going to really focus on driving service sales. We're going to add service salespeople into the into the organizations. But frankly, that that just wouldn't have worked because the support function, the operational function just wasn't there to begin with. So we're on that kind of roadmap, first of all, Mm -hmm. operations. Then it's kind of the monetization and service sales of of, uh, support that's going to be coming in sort of the phase two part of the strategy. Mm -hmm. And then it's kind of phase three, continuous improvement and, and taking that to the next step.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, how has, how has this, um, this mission been received? You know, how are the, the NSCs reacting to, to the change and, and to, you know, what you're looking to accomplish?
1: I think generally, uh, and actually it's, it's, it's an interesting time for us because we've just gone through, uh, employee survey time. So, um, generally I think, uh, it's been positive. Uh, I th- I would be it would be wrong to say that everybody's happy because for I think sure. that's just impossible. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think generally uh, we need to do a better job of communicating a strategy at the lower level. That's mm-hmm. where we we've perhaps not been particularly great at, at making sure that that message is is filtering and cascading down. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a few reasons for that. we we're, we're working on a service development program to train not just from a, a physical training on products, but also development of our managers, our leaders. Mm -hmm. uh, And that takes time to kind of implement and then cascade cascade down to kind of the next level and so on and so forth. So we are Mm -hmm. trying to create a a little bit of a movement and I hope the next time round, we'll have a better connect between what we're trying to do at a strategic level and how that works as maybe an engineer in the field and how they link to that as well. So I think also as well in the current time that we're in, that's been uh, difficult because we're not able able to travel, you know, we're not able to Mm -hmm. go and meet teams physically. And that's what I personally love to do is to go Mm -hmm. out and see organizations and, you know, ask the questions, get the kind of feel on the ground as it may be. It's difficult Mm -hmm. doing that kind of in a team's meeting. You don't get Mm -hmm. that same kind of touch and feel that you perhaps would in person. Yeah. Um, And even being
0: able to pick up on you know I just think it's it's different being in a room with people you can kind of read people's body language and engagement and, and you can kind of tell if someone's you know maybe has a concern and isn't speaking up and it gives you an opportunity to to dig in or or speak with them one-on-one you know it's, it's far easier to miss those things when you're doing all of that communication virtually you know that it, there is a, a big difference for sure yeah I,
1: I agree and I think that you know fundamentally sort of going back to your, your original question I, I think that there is still work for us to do, you know, fundamentally we're a technical organisation at the moment. We've got a lot of technical people mm-hmm. me talking about service sales or attachment ratio. It's very foreign at the mm-hmm. moment for us. So we've got to be, uh, I think we have to be, um, Uh, kind of careful in how we approach this it's not to go too fast too quickly Mm -hmm. it's to be kind of you know steady and stable in our approach and making sure that first of all I think our organization feels supported we're here to help we want to kind of give them the tools and resources to do a good job Um, and I think the the monetization and the service sales element of what we're trying to do by adding you know a, a value to service will come in time it, yeah. You know, I don't. I don't want to ram that down their throats. We must make money from service. You know that that's that's the wrong approach to happen. And I think we would we would fail if we took that approach. Yeah. So it's support first, and then a slow, gradual kind of uh, movement towards servicetization and selling service as a solution, rather than the, in almost a kind of freebie that we give for free, just right. simply support the product. So that helps the business as well. You know. So.
0: Yeah. I. Th- I. I mean it's undoubtedly the right approach. I mean, you know, we, we talk a lot about building a strong foundation and you can talk about that from a technology perspective but you can also talk about that from a cultural and change management perspective. You know, and I always say you don't just, in this situation, particularly when you're talking about frontline workers, like you can't just force compliance. You know, compliance will not give you the customer experience you're, you're wanting to achieve. You really need buy-in, you know, and it takes time in, in a a company that has a legacy, that has a history, that has a certain way of doing things. It takes time to create that buy-in, but I wholeheartedly believe that, that doing that on the front end before you try and build on it is, will, will be far more successful than trying to, to rush through it. Um, yeah, I
1: agree. I think fundamentally as well, it's, it's, I think it's like trying to create a movement, it's trying to create mm-hmm, a culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as you said, that takes a little bit of time. We're trying to kind of uh, make sure that the AE, certainly the service managers are in a position where they can do less of the doing and more of the being, you know, take mm-hmm. them out and, and have heli- a helicopter view so they can see their organisations. Mm-hmm. At the moment, we're very much kind of um, reactive uh, on right. a day to day basis. Uh, and that's just purely because we are kind of a technical team, and we we deal and react in that way. I think mm-hmm. service is, is a bit of both. You have to be both proactive and reactive. It's a dynamic organization for sure, uh, and as a dynamic industry. Sorry. So I think we need to make sure that we can respond accordingly. So.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of psychology in it, really. You know, and and it is really interesting. Um, but it, it's it's multi layered and, and a lot of hard work. You know, the other thing I was going to say I don't want to get us too off track but um but this this uh point has been coming up a lot in in my recent conversations so I, I wrote quite a bit last year and and even in my um predictions you know article looking at 2021 about how there's this um greater openness uh, to change as a result of of covid right so so we've seen companies that have you know just, by force or or just in terms of recognition, you know, have have realized, okay, you know, we need to do some things differently. We could use this new technology or we could change and, and do things this way. And you know there there's kind of been this um, increased um, acceptance of, of evolution and agility and and the need to become creative, et cetera. Um, and I do believe that that's true, and I think that's still true, and I think it will continue to be true. but, what I've been thinking a little bit more about this year is um, while that that openness to change at the organizational level is true, there's a weariness when you really get into, um, you know, employees, you know, like there's a personal weariness that that I think exists this far into the situation we're all in, you know, I think you know, um, it's been quite a while since, since we've all experienced quote unquote normal life. And, and, you know, so I think that, um, when you, when you think about what people are going through all of us as human beings personally, and then you think about, you know, coming to work and having it be change, 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 you know, it, it is a lot. And so I think the other thing is, you know, while there's this, um, you know, maybe increase in awareness at the organizational level for how, you know, how we need to evolve, we need to be very cognizant of the fact that, you know, the employees we have are humans, and and they're going through a lot as human beings, and, and we can't lay too much on at once, um, you know, we, we need to just be, be conscious of that weariness, I think, at the individual level. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah.
0: it's just something that's been on my mind a lot lately um anyway um very typical for me to diverge um so so let's go back to um I wanted to talk quickly about um you know one of the first I guess uh things that you did from I don't know that it was one of the first things but one of the things that that I'm aware of that you've done from the operational um level is is introduce um remote assistance it was my um,
1: system it was yeah Right. Okay,
0: and, and so talk a little bit about um, the, the role that remote assistance plays in really trying to drive that unification um, and, and create more consistency and, and then we'll talk a little bit about how we see the use of that technology evolving.
1: Yeah, so I think I said before, we, we implemented um, around the start of kind of uh, COVID period, actually. So when it first started to become quite um, prevalent in, uh, around the world, it was actually coincidental. But it just seemed to happen at that point. Um, and we introduced this into two countries as trial pilots. Uh, so effectively, the UK and Germany, uh, we run those consecutively uh, for a period of a month. Uh, And then we decided to roll out across the rest of the organization. Um, I think actually it was interesting to begin with because to me, um, seeing the technology, it seemed like a little bit of a no brainer, but I think um, seeing the engineers feedback initially, it was mixed, I would say to be fair. And I think sometimes you have to kind of, we all have different filters in front of our faces. And I think Mm -hmm. sometimes the message coming through is not always the same. So I think in some cases, engineers were like, this is pretty cool. This is you know, really gonna help, could see kind of what we were looking to do. I think other engineers were, this is gonna change the way I work. And what this means is you don't want me to travel anymore and you don't want me to go out and see customers and you don't want me to do site visits. Actually, that wasn't the case. What mm-hmm. we always see, uh, saw this as was as a, uh, effectively a tool in the toolbox. Mm-hmm. Um, we also saw that there was a lot of inefficiencies around when we dispatch an engineer Um, We would sometimes maybe go to site and then realize it was not actually not a product issue, it was an installation error Mm -hmm. or or something that was not related to warranty. Uh, And that was quite common, actually. Um, And that's nobody's fault. It was just the case that maybe there was a wire installed the wrong way around. And, you know, that was kind of for us a good trigger point to say, okay, we can help the customer quicker. We can reduce inefficiencies and reduce cost by using the IFS technology. Mm-hmm. Um, and that for us is where we've kind of now each month gone from strength to strength. So we saw very little uptake on, on the data for the first few months. Mm-hmm. Um, the UK seemed to adopt it pretty pretty quickly. And actually for many months, they were, they were kind of the highest usage across the whole of Europe. So what we decided to do then was to create a monthly kind of score report, not to kind of name and chain, but effectively just to let everybody know the systems here, actually the UK are uh, ahead of everybody to kind of Mm -hmm. create a little bit of competition. Um, And we send that to everybody in the organization, including our MD, actually, he gets a copy of that. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting to see uh, afterwards that we started to see a little bit of kind of internal competition come in. The Germans started to kind of climb up and actually overtook the the Brits. Um, And actually now we see the Italians coming in and they're Mm -hmm. overtaking. So it's, it's quite interesting to see now that, um, each month, the usage is going higher and higher and higher. So it's mm-hmm. been, it's being used uh, as, we, as we wanted. Um, we're starting to see teams network together, mm-hmm. um, uh, which is great because of knowledge sharing, because of the siloed approach before. You know, we may have a, a technical expert in Germany um, that has the answer uh, that maybe the UK guy doesn't. And now we can bring in that expert. So we've linked teams together, which mm-hmm. is obviously a real benefit. So we see it going from strength to strength, actually. So Mm -hmm. it's been been nice to get to this point nearly a year on uh, and Mm -hmm. to have it integrated into all of the NSCs and to see a lot of the countries now using it as a a daily tool. Mm -hmm.
0: So if you had to kind of summarize the, um, you know, the wins or the value you've realized so far and then sort of how you see the use of the technology evolving, you know, how would you how would you summarize that?
1: um i would see i would see it not as a quick win i think mm-hmm. it's something that you i suppose depending on your size of organization mm-hmm. you know, we've got quite a large service organization here of maybe sort of around 60 to 70 people mm-hmm. um so actually it takes time when you're working at organizations of that size and bigger um we we didn't force it as something that you know this must happen mm-hmm. we, we we sort of placed it there and then we just monitored and, and saw that because I think fundamentally engineers, and I can say this because I've been one myself. They're an unusual breed sometimes, um, and I think that because they can be remote and they can be in the field and they're disconnected from what's happening within the office or at a more strategic level, they don't always see kind of what the good intention is. You know, mm-hmm. so it may be that they worry about something that is not the case and. That certainly was a was something we experienced in some of the NSCs that they were perhaps a little bit worried about what we were trying to do with the mm-hmm. technology. Mm-hmm. I think now that seems to have subsided and we've seen that, um, as I said, that the uptake is is increasing month by month. So mm-hmm. we're quite excited about it. So my my advice I think for anyone implemented would be to to look at this as a as something that maybe will take a few months to get to kind of where you want it to be. It, it wouldn't be something that I think you could drive instantly Mm -hmm.
0: well and and again that comes back to um you know compliance versus buy-in you know maybe if you wanted to force it you could but you don't want to do so where there's you know more of a resistance you want people to actually see the value in using it i think it is a a good idea though what you said about um the visibility into use and kind of making it you know a little bit of a, a game or a competition and just you know getting people excited about um Co- you know, com- competing with one another a little bit. Um, yeah, that's, a, that's right. And
1: actually um, it's, it was interesting as well because we saw examples where we would have a guy on the phone for three hours trying to explain a technical issue mm-hmm. uh, and then and then actually just pointing out, but b- why were you on the phone for three hours when we could actually be on IFS? And right. we, had a, we had a very similar scenario where we were able to show a three hour call versus a 10 minute IFS call and the difference. Mm-hmm. It was the same problem, Mm -hmm. Uh, And the solution was the same, but actually it took two hours and 50 minutes quicker than the the phone call in that way. A picture paints a thousand words. So, you know, there's very good examples of that. And I think if you keep pushing that message, eventually it it tends to to kind of come into play and and say, yeah, okay, I get that message now. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, and, you know, there's kind of that certain element of, you know, I I think of it in relation to parenting, right, where you can Mm. say something. 300 times but sometimes it takes you know them doing it themselves to learn the lesson right so you know you obviously have to keep saying it you have to keep showing it but sometimes it's that first use of that technician being like oh my gosh you know that took 10 minutes and then it's like I'm sold now you know this is a great tool right so Mm -hmm. you know you you have to to look at both sides of that but so you're using it for um I, I don't want to speak for you, but let me just recap a, a couple of the points that that I'm assuming. Um, you're using it to have um, remote resolution of things that that really didn't warrant an on-site visit in in certain instances, right? So, like you said, if it was just something quick and easy where you would have uh, had a trip on site before, if you're able to see it, then you may be able to just do remote resolution. Is that accurate?
1: Yeah, I mean, if, um, fundamentally, in the time that we're in at the moment, health and safety is, you know, obviously paramount to us. So, mm-hmm. so what we've asked for is effectively if if it's not 100% necessary, mm-hmm. don't ever send an engineer, use IFS to mm-hmm. begin with anyway. Um, just purely from a health and safety point of view, obviously, that's really important to us. Um, beyond that, you know, normal times, we would be sort of looking for the use to be used where we've got to say a warranty claim. And, mm-hmm. and very often, you know, if it's a warranty claim, no problem at all, it's our responsibility we'll, we'll sort that. But we do see uh, from time to time where it's not a warranty claim, it's an mm-hmm. installation problem, or it's a, you know, something has happened that's not actually a Panasonic issue. It's very difficult for us as a manufacturer to be able to then say, well, I'm sorry, we can't fix this unless you pay us for this. You know, mm-hmm. gest- generally we'll do it as a gesture of goodwill, but that's a cost mm-hmm. on us. Right. We can still provide that service, but now we're just doing it remotely and of course the costs are dramatically reduced in that way and also it's more efficient. In addition to that as well, where you have customers that have maybe heating products uh, in the winter periods, you know no hot water and no, no heating, it's a really big deal. So again that's we've had cases where we've been able to provide a rapid response in minutes um, mm-hmm. where normally it may be a day or two days wait for a technician or at the very least several hours um, where we've been able to help the customer remotely, um, have the heat in operational again in in the matter of the, you know, a few minutes. So
0: So, uh, I want to kind of segue into, um, an adjacent conversation, but, you know, it's interesting because from an outsider's perspective, you know, um, this this technology is is it's super powerful you know and it's really exciting um and i understand some of the emotions that can be tied to it from the technician perspective but when you really look at like you said how to just make it a tool in your toolbox um it's really pretty cool right because you you you're able to things that didn't need to be handled on site can be handled remotely that improves customer experience. It, it saves Panasonic time and money, makes everyone's lives easier. In a situation where you do ultimately you know, use the, the technology and realize you do need to go on site, oftentimes you have a better idea of what you're going in for, right? So you kind of have a little bit of, of information going into the, the visit on what you might be tackling, right? So that can improve um, your, your first time fixed rate, resolution uh, rates, et cetera. Um, And the other thing is, like you said, that collaboration, that knowledge sharing, the connection of those remote teams to be able to draw on one another um, and leverage each other's expertise is, is huge. And we also see companies doing quite a bit when it relates to knowledge management. So not just allowing that collaboration, but capturing some of that. Um, so that you can, you can use that um, in future scenarios. And then the other thing that I think is really cool, that's, that's possible with this is the idea of how you can use it for training, right? You know, so, um, you know, maybe um, you get in a situation where you have an older technician that doesn't want to be out traveling all the time anymore, but he can be in the back office, he or she, um, you know, instructing folks uh, that, that are out in the field. So it's, it's really cool, but I want to go back to, to your point, which is, you know, like any new thing, you talked about how that communication from, from the top on what that strategy, what that vision is, can take some time to trickle down. And in the meantime, when you're introducing things like this, you know, if there can be some question, you know, so to your point, you, you've had some, some folks that, that maybe we're a little put off by this because they like traveling and they wanna be out in the field or, and they feel like maybe this is something that's gonna take that away from them. Or, you know, in other situations, I've heard stories of technicians thinking like, is this gonna replace my job? You know, like, and, is yeah, this is this I'm taking wrong. my job? So, you know, I, I guess there's a couple topics here. The one is is what you spoke about earlier, which is how you communicate that strategy to folks so that they feel more at ease. But I think the other thing that's important to talk about is the strategy itself. You know, I think that a remote first strategy is is really really smart. But people need to understand it's not remote only. You know, so so that's kind of the differentiation that that is important um, for for the workforce to understand. You know that that. You're not trying to take that away from them. So, so how? What are what are your thoughts on this? How are you tackling it? You know, what what are some of the ways that you're furthering those communications and and trying to address some of those concerns?
1: I think. Um, I mean, it's such a this this technology. I think has, has evolved reasonably quickly. Obviously, with recent times, obviously are, are kind of pushing that as a necessity. Um, so, I think in some sense, it's caught some industries off on the back foot a little bit because we're Mm -hmm. so used to doing a physical intervention rather than a remote intervention. That's happened for for years and years and years. So it takes time to get used to that, to say, Mm -hmm. okay, it's remote first and then physical second. Mm -hmm. Um, And as you said, it will never replace, we will always, there will always be a need to have to go out and do a physical intervention. But um, we're only now just getting sort of starting to really look at the data with regards to what is the ratio and that I think is for me will be very mm-hmm. interesting to see where we, we really make those savings in efficiency. Mm-hmm. I think for us we're, it's a steady as she goes kind of concept still for us. And as I said earlier, the main thing that we're doing is just, it's almost a slight nudge each month. Mm-hmm. Here's the report usage by country. Um, these are the people not using it. You know, mm-hmm. these are the people use it. These are the amount of calls. It, it's, it's just creating a little bit of internal competition. Um, friendly competition, of course. Um, So for us, we found that's the way that works for us is to provide that kind of gentle nudge in that direction rather than the hard, really hard push. It must be used this way. Mm -hmm. Of course, you know, we've emphasized the need for health and safety Mm -hmm. uh, and that goes without doubt. But I think we found because we can see the increases month for month for month, um, it's working, that strategy is working for us. So we'll continue to do that. Uh, and hopefully we'll see you know these increases in, uh, continue to go uh, in the right direction mm-hmm. and i think as we as we grow and evolve our service organisation as well we'll find new ways certainly to do that and mm-hmm. I, I think i said in, a, in another conversation with you it's it's sparked conversation around panasonic mm-hmm. uh, around training for example do we yeah. need to have a physical training room um, or can we have a training room that then has cameras that we can do remote training in that way rather than mm-hmm. trying to get everybody together uh from different organizations different countries that's a hard task it's expensive flights mm-hmm. so on and so forth people's time out but actually if we can do that training uh in a remote way then again that's something that we can do so it's interesting how that topic has has kind of sparked off other conversations
0: so. yeah and it's so interesting to me that's why i say this this technology is exciting to me because I do feel like the companies that that ultimately deploy it for you know a specific um, need or or opportunity, then it just you start seeing the light bulbs go off like oh and we could also do this we could also do this we could also do this, um, so so I like the point about. Um, you know, uh, promoting but not pushing the use of the technology. You referenced earlier when when you spoke about the employee um, survey that you just did. You're also looking to improve communication to the frontline workforce on exactly what that strategy is, right? To also put them at ease of, look, you know, no one's trying to tell you that you'll never go on site and, and all of those things, right? So that that's kind of the other part. Yeah. Um, I have two more questions for you, Carl, and and the next is, um, because you were a technician yourself, it, it makes me interested to ask you where you do see this going, because I think that, you know, no one's saying remote only but I think it is inevitable that the field technician's role is changing and will change. Right. You know, so as you, as if you just look at Panasonic's journey, you know, you're in, in the earlier phases of this servitization life cycle, right? You're really kind of getting, um, some, some strong foundation set to really begin that journey. But, but ultimately the skill set that you need a technician to have um in a servitized business model is is different in some ways than than in a in a more technical service operation you know you need to think more about soft skills and um, customer relations and stuff like that. And so what are your thoughts on that evolution? Like, what do you think a a field technician's role will look like? And and I'm not just saying at Panasonic, so I'm not asking you to speak, you know, about plans. Mm. I'm asking you more as a former technician, like, where do you kind of think this is heading?
1: I think it's without doubt, I think it's evolving. Uh, Mm. and I think it's evolving at pace. Uh, I think remote assist, is one part of that um, in whatever technology is used. I think Mm. we, you know, again, we talked about this in a previous conversation, but, you know, dispatching an engineer can, it's an inefficient process. Most Mm. of the time is traveling to and from sites. Very often a a good technician, whatever industry they're in will probably have a good idea of what's needed and and be able to fix the the issue relatively quickly when they're on site. So that inefficiency um, can be removed but it will always be a need to physical intervention. But I think in combination with that, there's, there's technologies, for example, 3D printing. If you look at a technician, it will often go to site. He'll then say, I need this part. I don't have that part. We then have to send a quotation to the customer and so on and so forth and then revisit the site again. So again, mm-hmm. a lot of waste, a lot of inefficiency. But then what if he could say, okay, I can use remote assist. I know what the part is that's needed. Um, And I print the part now, say a fan blade or something like that. Or even if he has to visit sites, he can print the the part physically in his van using the 3D printing technology. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, again, will start to happen in the future as well, so that you make sure to supply chains, quicker resolution times and and so on and so forth. So I think it's a natural um, evolution of of kind of the, the technician Um, And I think as we start to kind of, you know, we're only scratching the surface, I think, at the moment. So I think it's exciting to see what will happen in the next few years Mm -hmm. and how different technologies combined with a motor assist will make the process even more efficient.
0: Yeah, I agree. And and I, I think, you know, we've talked about this quite a bit today, but, you know, it's exciting when you're setting the strategy, um, but you have to remember that the people whose roles are evolving—you know—it can be less exciting, right? So, so that's kind of you know part of the theme of what we're talking about is, you know, it's important to temper your excitement for the company and and the the future with you know, some of that anxiety that, that that frontline workforce can feel. And another thing we haven't even talked about today, and we certainly don't have time to, but maybe another day, is um, the next generation of what that workforce is going to look like, right? So so they'll have yet different emotions about how all of this should be done and, and, and whatnot than, you know, some of the incumbent um, workforce. So it's a really, really interesting topic. Um, and, uh, and, and, and you know i'm I'm excited to to see where things go I think there's um you know a really interesting handful of years ahead of us um, but I think it's a, a good reminder for service leaders to remember that there are um you know real people on on the front lines that have emotions and and you know that needs to be
1: yeah I agree I, I think also as well that the the thing I think to remember in this in, in any implementation of things that are sort of more, technologically advanced than previous is, is that that uh, technology ne- doesn't necessarily kind of um, get taken up by the people in at the same rate. Some people will just naturally get it and, and they'll say yeah this is brilliant this is the coolest thing ever. Other people may actually be a bit worried about that and that's something that we've certainly learned is that some people may have been resistant but only because they're not comfortable sitting in front of a screen and talking to somebody like this. Not everyone wants a camera shoved in their face and, and I think for maybe uh slightly older generations that will be a very foreign thing for them Mm -hmm. Um, we've all got used to this i think in this way over the last last year but i think for many people it's still a little bit unusual so that takes time i think it takes time and it takes a little bit more of a a kind of a salesman's approach to say you know you know this is not a bad thing this is just a new way of doing things and people will adapt over time for sure but it's Mm -hmm. it's certainly at different rates
0: yeah um, okay. Last question, Carl. Um, you've had a hell of a year. Uh, you, you came into this role and then, and then everything changed. And, and this is a big journey that you're, you're spearheading um, and, and a lot going on. What would you say is, is the biggest lesson you yourself as, as a leader have learned over the last year?
1: Patience. That's what I would say. Patience.
0: That's, that's a good one um, not my strong suit, but, but I am also, (laughs) I am also working.
1: It's not mine either, but yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah, Well, for, for us, then it it takes, uh, but we've gotten plenty of practice the last year. Right. And, and so that's, uh, I guess, um, a good thing in some ways, but yes. Um, and, and I think, you know, that's evident in the conversation we've had today. Right. Um, and I think that, as I said earlier, you know, this type of transformation is just not something you can rush through, you know, not if you want to ultimately have success, you know um, you really do have to, to be patient and be pragmatic and, you know, look at it the way you're looking at it in terms of, okay, this is a long sell. We have a ways to go. Here's, you know, we need to build this foundation and, and go from there. So yeah, kudos to you for um for a year of, of really hard work and, and i'm excited to uh to stay in touch and see how things go really appreciate you joining um the podcast and sharing your insights today
1: no problem at all. happy to help
0: thanks you can find more by visiting us at futureoffieldservice.com you can also find us on linkedin as well as twitter at the future of fs The Future of Field Service podcast is published in partnership with IFS. You can learn more about IFS service management solutions by visiting www.ifs.com. As always, thank you for listening.